0: Hi, and welcome to another fascinating subject and episode of What I'm Obsessed With Now, with your friendly host and obsessive, Byron. This three-part series is one I'm really excited to dig into. Psychology has been a passion of mine for a long time. In fact, I hold a degree in psychology. Throughout my career, my interest in psychology and the way humans interact has led my career development and path. And the knowledge gained along the way has come in incredibly handy. In my creative life, the ability to have an understanding of human behaviour has helped me improve the realism of my characters and the way they interact. There is no more important question than how and why we think. Everything else rests on this understanding and the mechanisms that enable human thought. What is more exciting, interesting, and obsession-worthy? Now, you can't unpick all of human thought and interaction in a few episodes. Even I'm not that good. The next three episodes are an introduction to psychology, or rather, modern psychology. There are more stories to tell, and we will tell many of these in the future. What I have set out to do here is give you an understanding of where modern psychology started, which is a good base for future episodes or even your future research. To lay this all out, we will look at Jung's analytical psychology and behavioural psychology. But today, we are starting with the titan of psychology, Freud, and his school of psychology being psychoanalysis. So buckle in, get your libido and id in check, and stop blaming mother. This is going to be an interesting one. To get to the what of Freud's theories, it's important to get to the who of Sigmund Freud. Let's get him on the couch and take a look at the good doctor. Sigmund Freud is quite possibly the best known psychiatrist in the world, with concepts and terms from his theories moving into the common lexicon. He was a pioneer and brought psychology to the world and its masses. Dr. Freud was born on May 6, 1956, in Freiburg, then Austria, now the Czech Republic. At the age of four, he and his family moved to the capital, Vienna. For someone with such, let's say, complicated theories on parents and their responsibilities to the development of the child, his childhood was relatively normal. He seemed to have had a good relationship with his father, taking from him his humour, He had a special relationship with his mother, where she gave him unconditional love. Within their relationship and her nurturing, he was able to develop the emotional aspects of his personality. His mother loved him dearly and doted on the pre-bearded Freud. In his older years, looking back at this relationship, he says it dawned on him that he wanted to marry his mother and kill his father, Allah Oedipus. Now, two thoughts on this. The first is that he had this epiphany looking back at memories. It is not out of the realms of possibility that his then-current work influenced his memories. The second is that this is the reason we don't take a sample of one, particularly looking back at memories, which are flawed. Let's say he did want to have sex with his mother. A strange sentence to utter. That doesn't mean everyone does. This is one of the reasons his theories are scrutinized. Their research design is less than watertight. Many of these insights were gained through case studies or self-analysis. In 1881, Freud achieved his medical degree and set up his private practice. He began to treat patients for psychological problems. He viewed himself as a scientist first and doctor second. In this pursuit, Freud was influenced by and worked with fellow friend and Venetian Dr. Joseph Brewer. His claim was that by having his patients talk without restriction about the earliest occurrences of their symptoms, sometimes reduced the effect of their symptoms. I'm sure you can see here what would become one of Freud's signature techniques. In a situation that would echo throughout his life, his relationship ended with Dr. Brewer because he thought Freud was too obsessed with the sexual origins of patient conditions. Freud was stubborn on this point and wouldn't move on his position. Freud and his wife Martha had six children together. The youngest of these, his daughter Anna, became a renowned psychoanalyst herself. He seemed to have great pride in his daughter, their relationship complex to say the least. It is more interesting as Anna had a 54-year long-term relationship with Dorothy Burlingham. Interesting not just because a 54-year relationship is indeed a triumph, but Freud viewed lesbianism as leading to mental decline. Homosexuality in men was seen as a sign of neuroticism, but not a big deal. Women seemed to always get the short straw with Freud. In a complicated relationship with Anna, he once spent six nights analysing her masturbation fantasies. These featuring... These featured an angry father figure beating a child who made a mistake over, which she had no control over. This was seen as Freud being angry at Anna over her lesbianism. It would not shock me that she constructed this as a way to communicate to her father, in a way which he would listen. The pair were said to have a close relationship, and she did champion and expand on his theories. She worked on his concepts of defense mechanism, expanding the psychoanalysis theories. But if you thought having a world-renowned psychiatrist as a father would spare you from embarrassment, you would think he would be you would think he would have an awareness of others' mental states. In this you would be wrong. An incredibly cringeworthy event occurred when Freud was giving a lecture, Anna on stage to his side he went over her masturbation fantasies to the audience. To his credit, he didn't mention her by name. But everyone knew it was her. Talk about embarrassing fathers. Another relationship of note is his with Carl Jung, who we will look at in more detail next week. Theirs was a profoundly intellectual relationship. It is reported that on first meeting, the two talked non-stop for 13 hours. We all know those instances when you meet someone who just gets you. Freud was utterly impressed with his young friend and designated him his protege, exclaiming that he was overjoyed to find someone who understood his ideas innately. The two even travelled together, analysing each other's dreams, just like a pair of girlfriends on a big trip. But having two people with strong ideas and wills was never going to end like a fairy tale. They ended their relationship because Freud didn't like Jung's interest in religion, mysticism, and the paranormal as part of his theories of the collective unconscious. These are interesting concepts. I can't wait to share these with you. For his part, Jung thought Freud was obsessed with sex, and in particular, it being the primary driver of human personality. To end the relationship, Freud wrote a really bitchy letter which ended with him accusing Jung of not having the mental capacity to have insights to his own mental condition. Now there is a lot more to the great man's life, but we want to dive into his theories and maybe get some insights of our own. Let's move on and dive into Freud's work and theories, keeping an eye out for terms you may have heard. Psychoanalysis, like other theories of psychology, sets out to understand the mind and how to help people with mental health conditions. Psychoanalysis aims to achieve catharsis, an easing of psychological pain, and gain insights through talk therapy. The purpose of this therapy is to unlock unconscious thoughts. These cause those mental health conditions. The theory also puts forward that personality is defined by events in early childhood with strict stages of development. An issue at any of these stages can cause problems of personality in adulthood. These theories were developed by our man Dr Freud, primarily with the help of his patients. Through these people he spoke to, the themes and structures emerged. The problem that jumps out is that this is an incredibly small sample size, as well as having a massive bias in the reporter. But we'll push these aside for the moment. Freud was not the only thinker to contribute to psychoanalysis. Anna Freud was a major contributor and pushed the theories forward long after the death of her father. Whilst her father didn't believe you could psychoanalyse a child, she pushed forward with this idea, being one of the first child psychologists. Whilst I may have second thoughts about the underpinning theories, opening up children to psychological help is of profound importance. Throughout history, children haven't been seen as their own distinct group. They were kind of viewed as little adults. The acknowledgement of the differences has opened up help, specifically targeted to the needs at different ages. It is fair to say that she set forward a discipline that would go on to improve and save the lives of many children. Although this would be enough for one person to contribute to a field, she also expanded on how the ego uses defence mechanisms, an important elaboration to the id, ego and super ego theories. Her life was also filled with challenge. During World War II, she was interrogated by the Gestapo and fled to London. As a Jewish intellectual, Austria was not a safe place. As mentioned earlier, she had a 54-year relationship with Dorothy, something in the time that would not have been easy. She was an exceptional person, and I think more needs to be said on her, and will be. Next, we are going to move out of the Freud family, and look at the two Erics, From and Ericsson. These two thinkers are called out as major contributors to the theory as it evolved. Eric Fromm doesn't seem like he got a lot of sleep. He had numerous teaching roles, wrote a number of books, and kept a busy clinic. Interestingly, he was critical of many of Freud's theories, including the Oedipus Complex and libido, amongst others. The criticism at times was so forceful that the Psychoanalysis Institute suspended him from supervising students in 1944. Freudians did not like criticism. But criticism is what drives ideas forward and improves theories. Fromm believed that the social influence, as well as genetics, played a significant role in development. With this, he was one of the first and foremost social psychologists, a discipline that I find fascinating. It is hard to disagree that social influences make a contribution to your development, and the way we interact socially is fascinating. From also had a personality trait theory, all the rage at the moment. He believed that there were positive and negatives to each of these personality types, and you could display elements of more than one. I find it interesting that the most significant personality types have five dimensions. From's personality types are the receptive type, characterized by constant need from others, the exploitative type, willing to lie, cheat, and steal to get whatever they want. The hoarding type copes with stress by never parting with anything. The marketing type looks at relationships by what they can gain. And lastly, the productive person who takes negative feelings and channels them into positives. Of course, there is a lot more to be said about from, but we are talking Freud today. The second of the two Erics is Eric Ericsson. Thanks, Mum and Dad, for that name, Nameson. Erickson, like Fromm, was interested in the social aspects of personality and development, introducing a theory of identity crisis. He was an incredibly busy man as well, teaching at UC Berkeley and Yale. I mean, if you can't teach at Harvard, that's a good second. Erickson was a believer in eight rigid stages of personality development, starting at newborn and going towards adulthood he believed at each stage psychological stresses occurred and would result in positive or negative outcomes. The basic structure is similar to Freud's psychosexual stages of development. Here are the eight stages and their corresponding virtues. Trust versus mistrust, virtue of hope, and this is between the age of zero and one and a half. Between one and a half and three, you get autonomy versus shame with the virtue of will. 3 and 5, you get initiative versus guilt with the virtue of purpose. 5 to 12, industry versus inferiority and the virtue of competence. 12 to 18, fidelity is the virtue, identity versus role confusion. Between 18 and 40, intimacy versus isolation with the virtue of love. Between 40 and 65, generativity versus stagnation with the virtue of care. And lastly, 65 plus, ego integrity versus despair with the virtue of wisdom. Erickson believed that conflict at these stages would cause an identity crisis. The way you resolve the crisis then will determine how your personality develops. From these three contributors to psychoanalysis, we can see the way that Freud informed psychology and the changes that developed less sex with mother and more social views. From Anna, we see child psychology, from social psychology and personality types, Erikson, psychosocial development, and the introduction of the concept of the identity crisis. You don't need to be correct to make an impact, which is true of Freud. Now let's move on to the man you all came here for, Freud and his ideas. They are interesting and insightful. While they may not hold up to modern rigor, they did help people thinking about thinking and how we behave. To start, let's look at one of his most influential theories, the stages of development. (coughs) Freud's psychosexual stages of development is an attempt to describe how personality is created. Importantly, it's Freud's attempt to understand why personality abnormalities occur. And because it's Freud, sex is never far away, so strap in for some uncomfortable concepts and language. Let's dive right in. Freud believed that sexual energy or libido was the driving force behind us humans. Like I said, sex. Well, I think sex is right up there for why people act in strange ways, I think this theory is a little adolescent. During those pimple-filled years, thoughts generally don't rise much from the crutch. Speaking as a male, it is a driving force for longer than you would think. That being said... As life moves on, as with everything else, it gets complicated. I don't know about you, but life begins to round out and what drives you changes and gets more complex. I do think Freud confuses a lot with pure sexual urges, family and achievement as an example. He distills this as sexual urges. What we have discovered through better research is that sometimes sex isn't even about sex. It can be about intimacy or power. Sex isn't always the drive and sometimes it's the passenger. All that being said, the psychosexual stages of development are an interesting concept and as we move through them, I think you will recognise some concepts. Some because Freud's impact on popular society and some because they feel right. The five stages are oral, anal, phallic, latent and genital stages. The area of the body associated with each stage is viewed as the area that acts as the source of pleasure. As you move through the stages, if issues are not resolved, fixation can occur. This is when you remain obsessed on an earlier stage of development. Can't stop shoving food in your face? Maybe you're fixated on the oral stage. Speaking about oral, let's start our view there. Each stage is associated with an erogenous zone, and in the case of the oral stage, the erogenous zone is the mouth. That was an easy one to guess. This stage lasts from birth to one year old. If you think back to when you are a baby, or when you last saw a baby, they are obsessed with getting food into their mouths. To be fair, so am I. Through instinct, they can latch on and eat without a thought. A newborn baby placed on their mother's chest knows exactly what to do. Freud explained that stimulation during this stage occurs primarily through the mouth. Eating things, sucking on things, and in this period, teeth explode through the gums. Parents I know do not enjoy this phase, and there is definitely an obsession with the mouth. But even at a few months old, it is clear that babies find stimulation in toys moving around, their parents talking to them, and in general, what's going on around them. I find the simplification of development at this stage quite strange. I can't tell whether Freud was obsessed with sex and ignored anything he couldn't tie to it or everything else wasn't important enough to note. The conflict at this stage is weaning. The baby becomes less dependent on the primary caregivers. Issues at this stage can result in dependency or aggression. I mean, when I'm hungry and can't get food in my mouth, I do get agitated. So I get this part of the theory. Freud believed fixation at the oral stage can result in drinking, eating, nail-biting and smoking. It makes sense on the face of it. If you don't get the satisfaction at the oral stage, you will obsess about getting things into your mouth. But this really ignores the rest of your life and the changing nature of the brain and personality. It also ignores the social aspects of development, which later practitioners built on. The next stage is the anal stage. Hmm, you in the back row. Grow up and cut out the laughing. The anal stage occurs between the ages of one and three. The erogenous zone at this stage is the bowel and bladder. The primary focus of the sexual energy is bladder and bowel control, basically, making sure you don't crap yourself or pee your pants. I think here again, Freud was onto something but because he wanted to tie everything back to sexual energy and the libido, missed on the complexity of development. During these years, toilet training is a big part of development, but personality development during these years is so much more complex. These are the years they become real people, with their own personalities and extends past trying to not soil yourself. The main conflict here is toilet training, and success is dependent on on how the parents handle this. And when we say toilet training, in most cases we mean mother. I mean, it's getting better, but particularly in Freud's day, it meant mother. Maybe this is where Freud got his obsession with the great impact of the matriarch. He did have a close relationship with his mother. Maybe she toilet trained him right or wrong. If you use positive reinforcement, good boy Timmy for plopping in the toilet, you will develop in the child, a capable and productive member of society. He even thought that success in this stage helps develop creativity. I mean, I don't follow, but I'm not bad at spinning crap, and I've been toilet trained for decades. If you do the opposite and chastise the poor kid for messing up on the rug, well, then you might get a messy and destructive personality. This is also where the term anal retentive comes from. Someone obsessive and rigid. And for God's sake, Karen... No one but you cares that according to regulations, blah, 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 blah. This is an example of Freud's concepts entering into the popular culture. So next time you have to deal with an anal retentive person, have some sympathy. They were probably told off for messing up in their pants. And if that someone is you, you're not bad and mistakes are okay. Now we finally come to the phallic stage. And yes, Freud was keenly focused on men. A sign of the times, I guess. But this excuse always sounds strange to me. We are just half the population. It's not like we go, humans are great, let's not look at any other animals. Anyway, the phallic stage. This happens between the ages of three and six, and the erogenous zone is the genitals. Again, here Freud makes some sense. Little kids always have their hands in their pants. Parents tell embarrassing stories about their kids putting their hands down their pants at the most embarrassing moments. Some don't grow out of this. Guys, seriously, can we talk? You need to stop touching yourself. It is creepy. I know it's comforting, but it's gross. And if you do, wash your hands. Now, more than ever, no one wants COVID crutch. As you probably guessed, the focus at this stage is the genitals. The theory is, it's at this stage that little boys and girls notice there's a difference. It is at this stage that the Oedipus complex raises its disturbing head. This is based on the story of Oedipus who killed his father because he wanted to have sex and marry his mother. Ancient Greeks, right? Freud believed it is at this stage that boys view their fathers as rivals for their mother's affection. This, I think, is the result of a massive dose of projection. From what I have read, he had a very close relationship with his mother. Again, he took a sample size of one and extrapolated it a great deal. Freud also believed that the boy is also fearful that his father will punish him for these feelings. Again, this may shine a little light on young Sigmund. The flip side of this is penis envy, another one on our list of popular terms. Freud believed it was at this stage that girls realise they don't have a penis, and this causes anxiety. Oh no, I don't have a penis. It's just a little sexist and strange, but that's our boy Freud. There is also the electric complex theorized where you sub in a girl obsessing the- over their father. Freud thought this was wrong. They were clearly anxious about the lack of a penis. Either way, a tad creepy. Freud never believed that women fully resolved this anxiety over their lives, always wanting the D. Again, this is really stupid. You may be asking, OK, I'm fixated on the phallic stage, what are my issues? Well, you would be overly vain, an exhibitionist, and sexually aggressive. And if social media is anything to go by, the phallic stage has not been resolved for a ridiculous amount of people. Oh, and if you're female, next time you feel a bit anxious, it's just because you don't have a penis. And guys, if you're looking at yourself in the mirror too much, then you want to have sex with your mother. Nothing creepy here. After a little cleansing, let's move on to the pre-puberty years. And it is interesting to see what we would call the pre-teen stage singled out. For most of human history, children were just viewed as smaller adults. This developmental stage, whilst flawed, did do a lot for the understanding of different stages of development. The latent period starts at six and moves through to puberty. There is no erogenous zone as sexual feelings are inactive. It is at this stage that the superego is strengthened, and the id recedes in prominence. Don't worry, we'll cover these concepts shortly. Freud put forward that at this stage there is a period of calm and children are more concerned with peer relationships. If you have seen a group of eight-year-olds, calm isn't necessarily the word you would choose. In this case, Freud is referencing the sexual energy, which he believes was there, but sublimated into other areas like learning and making friends. It is at this stage you learn to communicate and build your confidence. This could be seen as where the social elements of Freud's theories live. As with the other stages, if you don't successfully move your way through this period, you can be fixated and you'll be an immature jerk who can't form healthy relationships. He didn't put it this way, but I'm sure we all know someone who is still in the latent phase. Now, let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about... Need to cut that off before I have to pay royalties. The next stage is the genital stage. I mean, let's just slap us across the face with that name right there. The age range is puberty to death. I mean, just a small portion of your life. I think this one misses one of the most important sexual developmental stages, which is adolescence. Those who made it through being a teenager, there is a huge amount of development in the groin region. This miss isn't really surprising because adolescence wasn't always seen as such a distinct stage as it is now. The libido gets supercharged as puberty sets in, and Freud puts forward that we develop a strong interest in the opposite sex. Now, while the strong interest is true, not always the opposite sex. Although he did tend to focus on heterosexuality, he didn't believe homosexuality was a pathology, and he believed attempts to change it were wrong and harmful. His views are complex, but more positive than a lot of psychologists of the time. The last stage lasts throughout the remainder of life, and ain't that true? If you successfully navigate the prior stages, then you're able to have happy and healthy relationships, just working your way through the remainder of your horny life. Now I think there is a lot wrong with this developmental theory. I think it's simplistic, misses the cultural and social influences, and is far too concerned with sex. Don't mention that to Freud, or we can't be friends it also misses a whole group of people we call females. I hope I pronounced that right. He and most other doctors at this stage tended to ignore the opposite sex. That being said, this idea of developmental stages and having people think about how needs change is valuable. It caused others to further investigate, and like with a lot of Freud's theories, the theory itself is not as valuable as thinking it encouraged. Next up is the superego, ego and id, a theory of personality. This is aimed at describing how we function in the world. Freud believed that the personality is complex, and this triad and this triad goes a long way to understanding what is happening to give a person their personality. Let's jump into these three, and as we move forward, let me know if you think you are more superego, ego, ego, or id-strong. The id can be thought of as the caveman part of your personality. It is the part of you that all your urges come from. Freud described it as a source of psychic energy, not seeing ghosts, but a stand-in for libido. So unless you get hot and horny for ghosts, they have nothing to do with each other. The id is there at birth, it is primitive and as such it is innate. Freud believed that the id was unconscious, always below the surface ready to tell you to rub yourself against someone. The id is viewed as the pleasure principle and doesn't just concern itself with sex. Any base need, like food, can cause anxiety if not fulfilled. No food, you get hungry and you try to eat. No water, you get thirsty and you try to drink. No sex, you get horny and you try to. Well, you know. In infancy, the id is important as it allows the baby to eat and survive. But as we age, we develop through the psychosexual stages. We learn to mediate these urges. Rather, that is the goal. The superego is the opposite of the id and develops in the latent period. This is like the goody-two-shoes, always telling you what is the right thing to do. This is where your morals and ethics live, and this is what you access to make good judgment. It is a necessary part. It keeps you from running around nude, humping everything, and gorging yourself. Because that would be bad. There are two parts to the superego. The conscience, that is the part of you that holds information, that lets you know what is bad according to your family and society. The second is the ego ideal. This sets the standard for behaviour that is to be aspired to. Ego ideal sounds like a trendy homeware store, doesn't it? I imagine the super-ego to be a Victorian gentleman, at the side of a lady's ankle, chastises himself, while the id is behind a tree, trousers down, yelling out, show us your knees. The Ego is the manager of personality. It is the part of you that lives in the conscious world and works with the other two parts to interact with the world around you. It develops out of the id, out of the need to be more socially acceptable. The Ego works on the reality principle, trying to make the id happy but in realistic and socially appropriate ways. The reality principle is like a set of scales – On one side, the cost, and the other is the benefit. Based on how these scales tip influences your actions. Another Freudian concept to throw in is delayed gratification. The ego only lets the id go wild at a time and place where appropriate. The ego is being torn by the devil of the id and the angel of the superego. What happens when the three parts of your personality aren't in sync? For those of you playing along at home who think they may be id, ego, or superego leaning, let's start with the easy one. If your ego is strong and able to balance the id and superego, then that person is a healthy and well-rounded person. Boring. If the id is dominant, then they will be impulsive and ignore the rules of society. I know a few id-heavy people. These tend to be fun at a party, but you can't necessarily trust them or spend too much time with them. If the super-ego is stronger, then this person becomes moral, judgmental and self-righteous. Nurse Ratchet springs to mind. Really unpleasant to have around and boring. Dresses in lots of grey. This theory has been a great influence on psychology and the study of personality. There is much critique to the theory, and in particular how each develops. That being said, this does feel right. I mean, when I think about decision-making, this sounds right. The problem I see with it is that it misses all the developments we have made since, which is an unfair critique, really. For its time, a time when not a lot had gone into the mind in a scientific sense, this is a mind-blowing theory. Again, Freud may have got the theory incorrect in totality, but it drove forward an important part of the study of psychology. As someone who works with people, this next section is of great interest to me. Are you ever speaking to someone and their response doesn't match the situation, or their actions don't make any sense? What you are seeing is an inner dialogue happening, that you only have one side of. I often like to say that when you speak to someone, they are having a conversation with themselves. You need to know how to join in. What we are going to discuss is the theory of defence mechanisms. There is some conjecture, like with the other theories, to the validity of this one. Other schools of thought don't outright dismiss the theory, but attribute the reason to a rational thought rather than the subconscious. This theory does give some food for thought, and I have seen people employ what seems to be these mechanisms, regardless of how we attribute them. It is also interesting to see if any of these strike you as being something you would do. Self-analysis is key to self-improvement in my view. It is also important to note that these defence mechanisms do not innately have a negative attribution. Let's start with what can be termed as the, I know you are, but what am I? Projection. This is when you attribute to others something you are being accused of. I think this defense mechanism could also display because we tend to guess other people's motives from those of what we know. It makes sense that we would then project onto others our motivations. Next is the, I can't see you defense mechanism, and that is denial. This is when you refuse to acknowledge facts and experiences to avoid pain. This is common and I'm sure you have seen this many times. As mentioned, these are not always a negative and I know I have personally employed denial when dealing with something painful, allowing me to ease into dealing with a subject. It can become a problem though and if you're in denial for too long or for things you need help with, the problem can get worse. The next defense mechanism is the equivalent of sticking your fingers into your ears and saying la 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 la, and that is repression. This is when you refuse to allow a thought to move from the subconscious to the conscious world. It is similar to denial and really relies on the idea that there are firm structures in the brain that can be called the conscious and subconscious. What happens when you don't want to go to work and would rather sit and get your belly rubbed? Regression. This is where you employ behaviours or emotions associated with the previous developmental stage. I'm sure we can all relate. Some days you just wish to be carefree again. But when this thought becomes persistent, it is detrimental to happiness and development. The next one makes complete sense. You just don't understand. Let me explain it to you. Rationalization is when you justify or react to a situation, applying logical explanation that on closer look is anything but logical. This is probably the one I notice the most in others, when they make a poor decision and rationalize it. I think breaking through this allows for the person to take responsibility, and that is better for everyone. What do you call it when you stub your toe and then slap the cat? Besides utterly inappropriate, it can be an example of displacement. This is when you redirect your emotion or reaction from where the anxiety comes from to another person or thing. Going dark, this is what's in play when a serial killer hates his mother and takes it out on a victim. Disturbing in this instance, but doesn't always need to be. On the flip side, let's hope being nice to someone can cause them to displace this onto those around them. People might think I'm not macho, but that doesn't bother me. Now watch me wrestle this lion. This would be an example of reaction formation. This is when you express the opposite of how you were feeling inside. Also termed overcompensating. I think we have all seen this in action. In fact, I have been friends with guys who felt the need to do this. It was always confusing to see them confide in me their thoughts and then act in a way that contradicted this. It was enlightening to read about this and have the lights turned on. The last one we'll touch on, and because I really want to get lucky, I made this podcast. Sublimation. This is when your channel urges sexual or otherwise into productive outlets. This one made me think about those overachievers and just how horny they must be deep down. They just want to rub up against someone instead created a social network that could cause the downfall of society. That sounds like a joke, but it's not. Facebook started as a hookup site. Zuck really wanted to get his freak on and instead built a platform that allows Nazis to rise up again. Think about how much better things would be if he was attractive and not a cyborg. I hope this gives you some food for thought and the next time someone's words or actions don't make sense, maybe they're employing one of these defense mechanisms. I have always found dreams utterly fascinating. I have had some really weird dreams and then used them to create stories. Does your dream about a giant gourd being thrown down a well mean anything? The jury's still out on this one. We really don't understand sleep, let alone whether there is a reason we dream. Freud, though, believed that dreams were the person's deepest, darkest secrets come to life. Freud believed that we would get really embarrassed if our dreams were obvious, so instead the brain creates symbols to shield us. He loved dreams so much he wrote a book about it, The Interpretation of Dreams. As mentioned earlier, he even stayed up late into the night discussing his dreams with Jung, before they broke up that was. Because everything has to be strange, we often see ourselves as a house, not great when on a diet. Smooth walls are men, and if there is something to hang onto like a balcony, it's a woman. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me either. Parents are authority figures like leaders, and children are small animals or vermin. Can't make this stuff up, unless you're Freud, I guess. If you are wet, it has something to do with birth. Either go into the pool or out of it. And you know, because it's Freud, the most attention is given to sex. Freud thought that most things in dreams are about sex. If you dream of three, you're thinking of some dude's junk. I'm guessing because there is one penis and two testicles? It's just maths, really. Anything that is standing up is a penis. Trees, poles, really tall people. Oh, and things that can penetrate the body, like a knife or spear, is also a penis. I mean, come on brain, you're not even trying to hide that one. Oh, anything water can come out of is also a penis. Looking through a telescope? Penis. Blowing up a balloon? Penis, fighting on the Death Star with the lightsaber, blue penis. And how do you know if you're excited? Well, you'll raise up. Again, not even trying. If you dream of a balloon floating into the sky, that's an erection for you. Rocket ride? Nope, erection ride. Hot air balloon? Romantic erection ride. Basically, anything that is even slightly elongated is a penis, and if it moves up, that's an erection. What does this say about Elon Musk's obsession with reusable rockets? How do you know if you're dreaming about a vagina, though, you might be asking? Well, anything that is able to be filled. Look, I know it sounds like I'm being a smartass. I'm not. Caves, boxes, or handbags. For some reason, wooden and paper objects are symbols of women. Now, you might be asking, I dreamt about apples. They were boobs. Any fruit, really, are boobs. And this really raises the question... Do you dream about peaches, mangoes or watermelons? If you're in Hollywood, do you dream about wax fruit? In a more pleasant move, treasure represents someone you love. And right back to sex, sweets are viewed as you really wanting some sexual delights. Did you dream about ripping off branches? Masturbation, my friend. Dreaming of teeth falling out? You're just worried you'll have your balls chopped off for masturbating too much. I was told it was a lack of control, and I'm a control freak, so it made sense at the time. I'm now more confused about being the tooth fairy and taking people's teeth. I find it so interesting to delve into the world of dreams, and I look forward to reading more about what we find out about them. I think we need to take Freudian dreams with a pinch of salt. I'm really curious, and this might be dangerous, but what do you dream about? Drop me a line. Mm. This has been a really fun one for me to research. Freud really set forward the field of psychology, and as with any discipline, concepts evolve and what you thought at the start of the journey is seen as inaccurate as it develops. But it's because someone like Freud put their attention into the field that it has evolved. It's safe to say that Freud had a strong libido, and maybe some projection was happening in his assumption that everyone else was just as obsessed. Then again, sex is pretty prevalent in our society. The thing for me is the lack of social aspects in his theories. This is an area of psychology which I not only find fascinating, but think is crucial to our social species. And the idea of the distinct subconscious and conscious divide doesn't seem to bear out in research. Psychoanalysis is what leeches are to modern medical techniques. There are some circumstances where it might be right but there are better ways to do it in most circumstances. But let's not throw out the ideas, because we should always have an appreciation of where we have come from. That is enough Freud for now, and before I dream of being on a spaceship eating apple pie whilst I shovel jewellery into the cockpit, let's look at our next subject. Next week we'll be looking at his best frenemy, Carl Jung, and his theories on our journey and his theories on our journey to understand where where modern psychology started. To catch all the future episodes, subscribe in your favorite podcasting app, leave a rating for the show to grow our obsessive community, follow the socials and join your fellow obsessives. Links in the show notes. Until next time, I'm Byron. I'm going through the phallic stage and I'll speak to you on the next episode. Written, produced, and edited by Byron Gatt for Pinchicus Media. Sound designed by Lily and Fred. They designed the barking, I edited out. Check out the full credits in the show notes and how to get in touch. Theme music from Mixkick.co.